Next month, the 2023 NATO summit will be held in Vilnius. There is not much mistaking the significance of the location. The Lithuanian capital is a short drive from the border with Russia's client state Belarus, not much further from Russia's own Baltic exclave of Kaliningrad. Lithuania is, like Ukraine, a former constituent, however reluctant, of the Soviet Union. This summit will occur right on NATO's front line. And it will matter beyond its considerable symbolic importance. In theory, this will be the summit at which NATO finally welcomes Sweden aboard and names its next secretary-general and decides on the arrangements which will help Ukraine to the furthest extent possible until such time as Ukraine can itself be admitted into the alliance. The Foreign Desk will be going to the NATO summit in Vilnius, and you'll be able to hear the first of our reports on July 15th. But in this special episode, recorded earlier this month at the Globesec conference in Bratislava, we look ahead to get a sense of how NATO is continuing to adjust to the challenge presented by an unabashedly belligerent Russia. Does NATO fully understand what it is up against? How has NATO adapted its day-to-day policy-making in response to Russia's aggression? And who could, and or should, the next Secretary-General be? This is The Foreign Desk. The alarm bells, the wake-up call really was 2014. I started working on NATO in 2017, and I walked into an alliance in the midst of a big transformation. So we were already talking about pivoting back to collective defense. We were talking about learning the lessons from Russia's illegal and illegitimate annexation of Crimea. So there was already a lot happening. That said, in terms of the broader Euro-Atlantic space, yes, the war has accelerated that trend exponentially. And I do feel that we are taking our own security and our own defense more to heart than we have for generations. And that, of course, is quite significant strategic mindset. Finland's membership will not be complete without Sweden having joined as well. That is how closely we are interlinked when it comes to security issues. It's not only our geographical position on the Scandinavian peninsula. So we have joint planning for war, for instance. We have joint troop exercises, forces and so on. So both politically and militarily, we are very much aligned. And it makes no sense to have one in NATO and not the other one. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we'll hear from the head of policy planning for NATO's Secretary General and from a former Estonian president believed by some to be a front-runner for the job. But our first guest is Ingrida Shimanita, the Prime Minister of Lithuania. I began by asking how significant it is that the upcoming NATO summit will be hosted by Vilnius. Well, I would say that on on one side, this is a huge organizational and logistical challenge, (laughs) you can imagine. But on the other side, uh, I think it is a very important symbolic signal where leaders of NATO gather in a country whose capital is so close to Belarusian border, which you might quite call a... Russian border or this uh, United States, whatever border, and quite close to the battlefield. That symbolism is obviously important, and I'm sure it's no accident that Vilnius is is, is hosting the summit, but 
Do you see any drop-off at all in resolve among NATO, or is it in fact quite the opposite, that people a year since the last NATO summit feel like that Ukraine can actually win this? Well, I think that there is much more understanding that any piecemeal sort of solutions like ceasefire for ceding of land or, or whatsoever does not mean victory for neither for Ukraine nor for Europe, because this is not the end of the war. Because end of the war is not the ceasefire. Ceasefire is just ceasefire. And we know that if Russia is given a chance, then it will regroup, rearm, rebuild itself and will come for Ukraine or somebody else, meaning that Ukraine will not be able to live its life like a normal country until uh, the war is ended, and I mean ended, and this end is a victory for Ukraine. So I think that trust in Ukraine being able to to sort of defend the territory, to implement the counteroffensive with the newly uh, supplied weapons, I think this trust is quite is quite strong. I mean, I, I would see a difference uh, with a year ago where people were saying, oh, no, 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 Ukraine cannot mm. win because it cannot win. Now, I think if you compare the, the proficiency of the army, the proficiency of the commandment, the, uh, the capacity they, they showed to use the weapons they never used before, I would say this is amazing. This is an exemplary army in Europe. I mean, have you thought much, or, and I guess the Baltic and frontline states generally thought much beyond this? If Russia is defeated, that's not likely to be a straightforward scenario either, especially for the countries which border it. I think it depends on what is your vision on what will happen in Russia. Mm. So if you ask me whether I'm optimistic about Russia becoming a democratic country, then... <laughs> Unfortunately, I lack this optimism that some of my colleagues actually think is feasible. I do not say this is completely not feasible in a, in a longer period, but most probably uh, we would see a significant turmoil in Russia in, in this case. But I mean, the pure fact that Russia cannot just come and grab the lands would be a very important sign on this part of the world showing determination to defend the democratic uh, countries and democrat in territory of democracy. And then what happens in Russia? Many things might happen. Do you think Europe then needs to just assume that the threat from Russia is, is more or less permanent? That optimism of the 1990s, that idea that Russia could be transformed, there was even some fairly wild talk at one point that Russia might even join NATO, but that's, that's all gone. There's no, there's no return to well, that. Well, look at the doctrine that they just published end of last year, was that? Uh, what they said that their new posture is a basically Cold War posture, and the only difference is that we are this time on this side of the Iron Curtain, good for us. Because what they declare they want to achieve, they want to achieve the deployment of the forces on the western border mm. of Russia, eastern border of, of NATO, that is similar to Cold War numbers. So, of course, they will not be able to do that immediately, given the losses they suffer on, on, on the battlefield. But... 
If we say that this is not doable, no, that would be a lie. It would take five years or maybe 10 years, but the message to, to NATO and to Western countries is very clear from the current leadership that they are ready for a prolonged confrontation. So I don't think uh, if there is anybody who would still think about some optimistic outcome, unless, you know, a, a fundamental change happened in Russia. But so far, I cannot see where that can come from. I mean, Lithuania, like most of the Baltic states, has been extremely hawkish on Russia for perfectly understandable reasons of history and geography. Lithuania in particular has also been quite hawkish, at least in the last year or two, on China. You've had a, a, a relationship with Taiwan that China has obviously got incredibly annoyed about. But is it your worry that the wider West is making a similar mistake with China to the one it made with Russia. There was this idea that if we if we have an economic relationship with Russia, if we are dependent on each other for trade and for energy, then there won't be a conflict. I would bet that uh, if history teaches any lessons, then the lesson from Russian mistake might be quite illustrative when you think about China. Maybe that would not be so obvious uh, 20 years ago when mm. it looked like China is, you know, this panel communism and uh, market economy on the, on, on the ground, when no real content of Marxist ideology is prevailing in the real life. So that's why, uh, you know, we just go on parade or, 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 or do some things uh, that look communist. But uh, on the ground, we're a market economy. I think this shift happened some time ago, where you could actually see that China is giving away part of its economic prospects for mm. the ideology, and it's becoming more and more visible. One thing that is maybe reducing the risk is that the dependency of China on Western markets, both US and mm. European Union, is much more sophisticated than Russia's. So, of course, there are, uh, you know, more things to sort of weigh and discuss before you actually do something. But I think that uh, for a significant period of time, what China was trying to do it was trying to become as much self-sufficient as it can mm. and sort of close to the rest of the world. And this very much resembles the experience with Russia, where people were thinking that, you know, if you trade, then there will be no conflict. And if you increase trade, then you reduce the probability of conflict. So we, we must see this dynamic carefully, because this is not our understanding of the world. It's different understanding of the world. So the question is how to limit those risks. So now Commission is speaking about de-risking, we are speaking about decoupling. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe there might be a bunch of two, like uh, de-risking means decoupling at least in strategic sectors. Of course, this is a very complicated transformation also for European Union, but it was the same with gas. I mean, who could have imagined a year and a half ago that Europe can do without Russian gas? but it can do without Russian gas. That was the Prime Minister of Lithuania, Ingrida Shimonita, speaking to us at the Globesec Bratislava Forum. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller.
Russia's full-scale assault on Ukraine last February necessitated a swift switch in NATO's posture from theoretical to practical. For a look at what this meant for NATO's policy staff, I spoke to Dr Benedetta Berti-Alberti, head of policy planning at the office of the NATO Secretary-General. I began by asking Benedetta how she would describe her role at NATO. I would say that the policy planning unit, which I lead in the office of the Secretary General, is in a way the little internal think tank slash political consulting unit for the Secretary General and his cabinet. So we we work on developing policy recommendations. We look at emerging strategic trends and try to forecast what they could mean for the alliance. So it's, it's really about the research, the policy development. It's about supporting uh, the Secretary General in formulating his policy priorities. It's about supporting the Secretary General in articulating his main policy messages. So that said, yes, you, you're right, not two days are the same because, of course, we live in an incredibly complex Word and because the amount of trends that affect NATO and transatlantic security are uh, exponentially growing. Mm. So that means from looking at uh, Russia and China and the Arctic and hybrid threats, climate change, it's really a pretty broad agenda. I mean, it's a picture that became, for obvious reasons, much more complicated about 16 months ago. In that period since Russia made a, a full-scale attack on its neighbor, how has that changed the work that you and your office do? Well, I wouldn't say it has changed the work. I think it has made, if anything, at least in my opinion, the type of work we do even more important because it really, it is about, first of all, it's about looking at the longer term trends. And mm. sometimes in organizations, when you're caught in the day to day, it's very easy to to just not have the bandwidth to look at what are the longer term potential policy implications of the choices we make today? And how can we best future proof our policies by looking at potential scenarios that may bring us on a different track or that may change the political chessboard. So I think in, in a way, looking at potential contingencies and how NATO may respond and adjust to them is even more important today since the beginning of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. And then, of course, I also think it's incredibly important for us, while rightly focusing on this full-scale, brutal war of aggression that completely changes the dynamics for NATO and I think for European security are large. But at the same time, gone are the days where we can afford to only look at one threat or one theater. So I think our function is also to push the alliance to not forget about everything else that is still happening around the world. Uh, So it's quite a daunting task, but luckily we are not alone. We have many colleagues across NATO who perform similar functions. I mean, can, can you give us an example of something that you worry that people might have taken their eye off? Well, luckily, I wouldn't say that people are taking their eyes off, but I think the bandwidth is Mm. simply consumed a lot by Ukraine. So it's very useful to have pockets of the organizations who are also looking at what are the emerging security trends in the Indo-Pacific and how do they affect your Atlantic security, for example, of how can we continue to not just develop our climate and security agenda, but also look at broader aspects of environmental security and how they can affect NATO as an organization. So it's not so much that others are not paying attention, but I think it's important to have an internal function that tries to pick up weak signals, if you wish, in the political and strategic landscape and say, okay, we need to pay attention to this before it escalates into a fully-fledged crisis. So it's about maintaining that 360 situational awareness. 
And within the organization itself, what's your sense of how the dynamics within NATO have changed in the last 16 months or so? Obviously, a new member has joined. It is assumed, I think, that one more will be in due course. Does it feel like a different organization to work for now than it did before this started? I would say yes and no, meaning the no part is from a NATO military adaptation perspective, the alarm bells, the wake up call really was 2014. And Mm. that's to me was very clear. I started working on it in 2017 and I walked into an alliance in the midst of a big transformation. So we were already talking about pivoting back to collective defense. We were talking about learning the lessons from Russia's illegal and illegitimate annexation of, of Crimea. So there was already a lot happening. That said, I would say politically, in terms of our public opinion, in terms of decision makers in terms of the broader Euro-Atlantic space. Yes, the war has accelerated that trend exponentially. And I do feel that we are taking our own security and our own defense more to heart than we have for generations. And that, of course, is quite significant strategic mindset, except especially for many of our countries, which really for the 30, 40 years of the post-Cold War era, fundamentally assume a benign security environment in the mm. Atlantic space, fundamentally assume peace, stability, predictability was the name of the game. And so all those ideas have been challenged to their core. And now I think that makes the organization have an even greater sense of purpose and urgency in implementing that military and political adaptation that really had begun in 2014. Just finally looking ahead, there will presumably be a change of Secretary General before the end of the year. What difference to the alliance does that actually make? How much freedom does a Secretary General have to set an agenda or set a tone for for NATO entire? Well, the Secretary General of NATO has wears multiple hats, if you wish, right? So on the one hand, is the representation of a light consensus. It is the main spokesperson for the alliance. So mm. it, there is that role. But he's also, as chair of the North Atlantic Council, is also as a, he or she, depending on who it is, uh, has also a very important role in terms of shaping what the agenda is, in terms of steering the alliance forward, in terms of fostering the light consensus. And I think you have seen this very clearly with the with Jens Stoltenberg, the current Secretary General, over the years has really, I think, played a pivotal role in pushing the alliance forward when it comes to defense spending, military adaptation, when it comes to really talking about strategic competition and the challenges coming from China. There's a series of really important policy discussions where I think the Secretary General has played an incredibly important role in just steering that and fostering the allied consensus. And of course, also the Secretary General has good offices, responsibilities that you've seen at play whenever there are frictions between the alliance. His role or her role, depending who it might be, is crucial in really bringing those allies together and trying to see how we can get beyond past the differences and, and, and achieve consensus. So it's, I think it's a, it's a really fundamental role for mm. NATO. And that's why whoever will come after the Secretary General, I think, will have very big shoes to fill. That was Dr. Benedetta Berti Alberti, Head of Policy Planning at the Office of the NATO Secretary General. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Our next guest is Kirsty Kalulade, former president of Estonia, a position she held from 2016 to 2021. 
President Kalyulade is currently the global advocate of the UN Secretary-General for Every Woman, Every Child. I began by asking President Kalyulade how well she thought support for Ukraine had held up since Russia's invasion. Well, first and foremost, it's the Ukrainians who have fought for us to have that time to consolidate our thinking. Because let's be honest, not many, even in the West, and we know this from Kuluar, thought Ukrainians will even be able to hold the front for more than two weeks. Hence, they offered Zelensky to flee the country, etc. But they proved us wrong and they proved that they can fight. And therefore, we should first say we're very grateful to Ukrainians for making it even possible for us to consolidate behind the cause. And yes, indeed, we are consolidated. But if you look at the tough numbers, then Europe is spending 800 billion on Renew Europe and 4.8 so far on Ukraine, which is again, on the other hand, it's paradoxical, but it's a big thing because mm. we are not allowed, according to the treaty, to prop up each other's defense spending. And now we're doing this. So there is no straightforward answer to that, actually. I mean, I think Europe is doing what it can as quickly as it can. But of course, Ukrainians are far more impatient because they don't measure time anymore in weeks or months. They measure it in human lives. And hence, of course, for them, we are dragging our feet. For us, we are moving at full speed. And if I look, for example, what are the defense planning from five years from now, Germany is probably having a far more stronger army than right now. But of course, I mean, it takes time to turn that huge ship. We have to have some allowance for big nations to come to their conclusions, to take their decisions. Germany came very quickly to the conclusion, took very quick decisions, but implementation obviously takes time. But what I am worried is that markets are normally right, aren't they? And defense markets are not right now factoring in that there will be a long-term expanded demand for their goods, because otherwise they would be competing in putting out more production. We see Rheinmetall moving, for example, in Ukraine, but we don't see many others. So... Uh, I hope markets are wrong this time, but problem is they normally are right. So they are predicting that this kind of upsurge in military spending is short-lived. I don't know why, but they are. Are you worried then that a lot of those countries that are supporting Ukraine, however supportive they may have been, are also kind of telling themselves, look, we'll help Ukraine win this, then this will all be over and it will all go back to normal? I'm afraid so, yes. And also, again, numbers, nine countries in Europe met NATO 2% spending criteria. And we all know that even 2% probably is far too little to cover the hole which we have dug ourselves in over, over long term. And yes, I am worried that even if right now many politicians are clearer and clearer in their words, there will be no business as usual. It's still not very clear what this business as not usual <laughs> is going to be, of course. And many say that, well, it's not Russian people, it's the regime, and if there is a regime change, and I'm quite sure that Russia at one point will factor that in, because it's Putin who doesn't have a way out, but Russia has a way out. Put the presentable face towards West and pretend you've changed, like you did in 91. Everybody was very happy to, I mean, uh, engage with Russia, involve them in our cooperation structures, whereas they were not writing in their school books about the horrors of the Soviet Union. They should have done so. And I think this should be our uh, level of comprehension this time, unless they teach in schools something which starts from Holodomor and ends with this aggression and everything in between what they have done. There is no change in Russia. New face is not the regime change. We have to be careful with that. Does Europe have to get used to the idea that Russia, whether under Putin or not under Putin, is a permanent threat? 
I think we are getting to hear more and more of that from both NATO, also from US, who is now openly saying that they think that for decades the situation will not be much better. I mean, there might not be a hot war, but everybody is factoring in another standoff for a long time. And this is indeed true because nobody has right now any understanding what kind of mechanism might change Russia. Yet it happened in 91. And we should have then supported and propped the democratic ideas in the country by being more conditional in working with Russia. We weren't conditional in 2011, for example, when there was the last protest in Moscow, the biggest protest, I mean, anything bigger since then. Then we were talking about visa liberalization with Russia from EU side. Instead of conditionally adding conditionality, propping up democratic forces in the country, we didn't do it. And this was our era in 91, was in 2011. Of course, I mean, the weak positions in 2008 and 14, being just deeply concerned didn't help because Russia is not concerned about our concern at all. One of the subjects that has been discussed frequently over the last 15 or 16 months is the idea of Ukraine eventually joining the EU, eventually joining NATO. What kind of timescale do you think is realistic for that? I don't even want to speculate about timescale. We need a massive IPA program for Ukraine to uh, bring it in harmony with EU legislation because it cannot be a political decision because the European Union is an economic union as well. And if Ukraine joins, we have to be able to tell our businesses that go and trade and invest in that country. And it is exactly a legal space like you expect, I mean, in the rest of the Europe. So this will take time for Ukraine to implement the necessary level of rule of law. I cannot predict, but I am sure that they are doing whatever they can and moving as fast as they can. On NATO, I think everybody is right now more concerned about what kind of vocabulary to use to make clear that we have moved from the position of 2008. Message has to be strong. Yet, of course, it cannot be kind of naive message, of course, that as soon as war is over, Ukraine can join NATO because then Russia will find always ammunition to shell a little bit over the Kharkiv, for example. So it has to be carefully worded, but it has to also put forward the clear intent that this is not off the limits. And do you feel like, because another thing that has changed, certainly since this time last year, is that Estonia's neighbour across the water to the north, Finland, is now inside NATO, Sweden presumably to join in coming weeks and months. Does Estonia feel better defended to you than it did before the start of this conflict, ironically, given that this conflict is a result of Russian aggression towards a neighbour? Well, technically and tactically, obviously, the Gulf of Finland is now better defendable. That's just geography almost, you could say. Also, of course, Nordic armies are, are strong. And for Sweden not being inside NATO yet, everybody has jumped the gun. I mean, look, the Nordics decided to already create a common uh, air force about 300 military planes in the region. So obviously things are much better. But I also believe that as important are NATO's plans, which have considerably evolved because we have the experience of Ukraine. Previously, there were worries that till NATO allies reach uh, the countries under or country under attack, there might be considerable loss of territory. Now everybody realizes this is not about territory. It's about rape, torture, deportations, basically burnt land. And NATO is adapting accordingly. And so therefore, there are more reasons than just Finland and Sweden joining NATO. There is much more open-eye policy also from NATO's uh, strategic command. And just finally, the traditional leading question with Jens Stoltenberg due to conclude his term as Secretary General. Would NATO benefit from being led perhaps by somebody who has, who knows, led one of the countries which directly abuts Russia? 
Yes, and he's a woman and Eastern European, <laughs> indeed. And there are many of us, and we're all ready to serve, I'm quite sure. <laughs> that was the former president of Estonia, Kirsty Kaljulaid. This is the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Sweden was supposed to join NATO alongside its neighbour, Finland. A couple of NATO's members had other ideas, however. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, affected annoyance at Sweden's indulgence of his Kurdish opponents. And Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, saw a chance to annoy everybody and get his name in the papers. Our final guest is Anna Wieslander, a Swedish political scientist who serves as Director for Northern Europe at the Atlantic Council. I began by asking Anna whether she thinks Sweden joining NATO is inevitable. Yes, I think it's inevitable. I think just a question of time. Having said that, I think that it is important that Sweden becomes a, a member by the Vilnius summit or that at least is as clear as possible that there has been a shift in Turkey's and uh, Hungary's stance against Sweden. Because if it drags on beyond that, that will cause a range of problems that we will have to deal with and it's completely unnecessary. Have you figured out, um, to your satisfaction at least, what Hungary's angle is? There's been a series of portentous pronouncements from Budapest about the terrifyingly low ebb that the Hungarian-Swedish relationship has reached. Yes, and that's a bit of a mystery to us all because we don't really realise, you know, or we all ask what, what has actually happened here. Hungary, first, they were just saying that they would ratify and postponing it without putting anything on the table. And then uh, Orban raised his voice and complaints in also kind of diffuse ways. And basically, it seems as if they are shadowing or supporting Turkey passively in this process so that Turkey doesn't have to face this all alone in the alliance. That seems to be the main, main game from Hungary's side. But obviously, one of the themes of Globesec this year, as it was last year, is this idea of, you know, unified support for Ukraine, unified resolve in the face of Russia's aggression. Does it undermine that at all when one country, i.e. Hungary, admittedly a small one, is not joining in quite as enthusiastically as might be hoped? Well, I think both Turkey's and Hungary's action in this regard, when we had a very quick ratification of both Sweden and Finland, including from the United States, you know, everyone really made an effort to process us quickly. That was what everyone had agreed on, upon doing. And then you have this process where, where two out of 31 allies, as it is now with Finland, has joined drags this after themselves, then it really creates a wedge within NATO. I think that's one of the main vulnerabilities that NATO as an organization has to address at the Vilnius summit, because this creates a wedge in NATO and it only serves the interests of Russia, to be frank. Has it been a, a jolt at all to Sweden? Was there a kind of a feeling in Sweden that we're Sweden, everybody likes us, there won't be any problems here? Let's say it like this. I mean, once uh, Sweden started moving towards shifting its security policy and apply for NATO membership, there were, of course, a range of consultations. Mm. There were preparations with the NATO. There were bilateral contacts with all allies and so on. And at that point, we did not get any other indications that this would be a very, very quick accession process because of the situation of the war, but mostly because Sweden was already one of, of NATO's closest partners. And then came the objections from Turkey just a few days before it was all planned that we would send in the invitation process and the whole 
process with the NATO was also planned and Turkey was on board on that one too. So this came up very late. Uh, so in that sense, I think perhaps we could have been naive or done things differently, but there were not actually any signs of this regard until very late upon the invitation was sent. Do you think it has undermined at all, even at a, a cosmetic level, the impact of Finland and Sweden joining together, which was the idea. And until it became clear that that wasn't really possible, Finland was clinging to this line of, you know, both or neither. Yes, I mean, I think you can hear the Finnish leadership saying that, you know, uh, Finland's membership will not be complete without Sweden having joined as well. That is how closely we are interlinked when it comes to security issues. It's not only our geographical position on the Scandinavian peninsula, it's also the way that we have integrated our defense in the past year since the 2014 annexation of Crimea. So we have joint planning for war, for instance, we have joint troop exercises, forces and so on. So both politically and militarily, we are very much aligned and it makes uh, no sense to have one in NATO and not the other one. Is there any sign that the delay has prompted any waning enthusiasm among the Swedish public? Do you think that there's any sense of the novelty of the idea having worn off or do you think there is still public support for it? Well, the polls show still a strong public support for joining NATO. It's up around 70%. So that's fine. But I would add perhaps so far, I Mm. think this is another risk of if we do not have a decision by Vilnius summit, this support might diminish or there might be questions on the strength of NATO and discussions on options. We will be more vulnerable for disinformation campaigns from Russia, trying to shift the opinion as well. So I think there are a range of potential dangers, but we have not seen any decrease in support so far. That was Anna Wieslander of the Atlantic Council. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. This week's edition of The Foreign Desk and The Foreign Desk Explainer was produced and edited by Emma Searle, Christy O'Grady, David Stevens and Mariella Bevan. Thanks also to Roger Hilton, Olivia Strapakova and all the team at Globesec. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.